Okay, the reading today is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, and because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard the Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what, the prophet, what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thanks, Roman. Is this volume okay? Yeah? All right. So welcome to the first part of our Advent series. Um, 
Sarah actually gave me the choice of either starting the Advent series or continuing and, and finishing off our Metaphors of God series that we'd be doing. And I, I kind of wanted to finish, I, I had a metaphor in mind, but it wasn't really a metaphor, it was more like a characteristic of God. You know, I was wanting to focus on that idea of you know, God the planner or you know, God who's in control, God who actually knows what he's doing. Uh, but it's quite hard to fit that into a nice tidy title or a, you know, a metaphor of God. You know, there's a lot of you know, chaos and uncertainty in the world, you know, and there's parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. And I'm being a bit dramatic here, but sometimes my attitude is kind of like, you know, God, I believe in you, even though you haven't really given me a good enough reason to. You know, it's a little bit overly dramatic. I don't really believe that, but I'm just often quite quick to forget some of the incredible evidences for God, and when I'm struggling with something that's unclear in the Bible, it can make me forget about what is clear. You know, I can't understand this thing over here, so the whole thing's just a mess. You know, it's a very dramatic thought process. Maybe you can relate, or maybe that's just me. So I wanted to focus on this theme that, you know, actually God does know what he's doing. He has had a plan for a very long time to make things right, and it's not just a plan, but a promise as well, and one that he's kept. And I'm going to be so bold as to say that he's given us some, you know, pretty undeniable proof for his existence through the fulfillment of prophecy. And, and that's a big claim. So we'll see where we get to by the end of this, see if you agree. So that's my focus for today. And as it turned out, this passage in Matthew chapter 2 is actually a great starting point for that kind of message. Um, it'll help us learn a little bit more about this part of the Christmas story and also hopefully see the fulfillments in God's promises. You know, I've, I've often said that I feel most connected to God when I understand the scriptures or when something makes sense to me. You know, some people it's when they're in singing in worship or in prayer or in nature or whatever. For me it's this when something clicks. And unfortunately that's kind of few and far between, you know. It's it takes a lot to finally dig into something and be like, oh, that makes sense. When you can sort of see that there's a, a creative mind behind this that really did know what it's doing. So hopefully that this message opens your eyes to the reliability of the Bible and bring us God's word alive to you in a way that maybe it hasn't before. So we're going to start by unpacking this story and try and make it a little bit more real to us. I don't know about you guys, but with some of these Christmas stories, I kind of, as soon as I start reading them, in my head it's, it's a, it's not quite a novel, but it's, it's a narrative, it's a kid's story, it's a something with a deeper meaning. I, I don't think of it as literal history, this really happened. Even, even though I do believe it really happened, I, the style I, I feel it's written in, isn't, isn't that attitude. But today we're going to try and look at it through a historical lens. And we're mainly going to focus on the first three verses. Three verses. There's a lot to unpack just in these bits. So it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So Jesus was born, and sometime after this, it doesn't tell us how long after, these wise men turn up, these magi. At the, it sounds like they don't turn up at the same time as the shepherds in the, in the stable that we usually see in our kids' place. It's sometime after this. And it says during the time of King Herod, which is a little bit of an unhelpful time because there were three King Herods, but we can map that out through history. So it says... The NIV is a good example. It says that Magi came from the east, came from the east to Jerusalem. It, it doesn't actually specify the number of people there. 
you know, later there are three gifts mentioned, so the tradition flowed that there were three people that came. And you know, you're probably more familiar with us calling them, you know, wise men. That's the usually the kids' story, or sometimes kings. You know, we've got the we three kings of Orient, something, something, something. You know, that, that's what they're traditionally called through the church ages: wise men or kings. And you know, a couple of our translations call them magi, which is the, the technical term and, and matches the Greek. But the, the word wise men or kings flows better as a story, especially if you're telling it to kids. You know. You don't want people questioning, if you read Magi, what the heck's a Magi? And the focus of the story is Jesus. We don't want to be distracted by these other characters. The, the, the important thing to remember is people from far away recognized the Messiah was born and came to visit him. That's, that's the key to the story. But I'm going to go down the rabbit hole anyway and ask the question, who are these Magi? But the most important thing in the story is to forget about these guys and, and Jesus is the most important thing in the story. But that's not what we're focusing on today. So wise men is too broad of a term for these guys. Of course they're wise men. Kings is close, but that's not quite right either. So the Greek word here used for magi is actually the same word we read back in the book of Daniel. So we're going to travel back in time and have a look at the book of Daniel. And it's a little bit criminal how much I'm going to paraphrase the history of Daniel. It's such an awesome book and there's so much cool history in there. Um, but we're going to very quickly skip through it to see where we're at. So going back to 686 BC, we've got Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylons. He attacks Jerusalem and takes the people into captivity, including Daniel. This is written in Jeremiah and in 2 Kings. And then in the book of Daniel, we, we read about his time in Babylon. He was trained in their culture, and he ends up interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar, and he proves to be quite useful in the court of advisors. So he gets promoted. Later we read that you know, Daniel and his friends refuse to bow down to a statue, get thrown into the furnace, miraculously survive, which everyone is you know, quite terrified by um, and quite glad as well. Uh, you could go as far to say that King Nebuchadnezzar considered Daniel a friend. You know, Daniel's interpreting visions for him. And Nebuchadnezzar experiences a period of insanity, and by the end of it, Daniel's there for him, and he ends up praising Daniel's God after that, which is, that's a pretty big deal. This is the, the king of Babylon praising the God of Israel. In Daniel chapter 5, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, who the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. So, chief of the magicians is what it says here, but the, the same word there is magi. He's appointed the chief of the magi. So it's an interesting connection we see. And we can read about these magi from secular sources. They were a hereditary priesthood dating back before the Zoroastrian religion. So this eventually became the religion of Persia and, and that sort of part of the world, Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, so east, east of Israel. They were the priesthood in that empire, but they actually predate the empire. So here we see them in the Babylonian empire where Daniel is at the moment. So at this point of history, Daniel is in the Babylonian empire, not Persian. And, and these magi were particularly known for interpreting dreams. So you can see how you know, Daniel's skills in interpreting dreams would have got their attention. And the king promotes him to be the chief of the magi. He was performing better than the official magi, the official hereditary priesthood who were born into it. 
you know, it, it seems like it, it would have been a bit unusual to appoint an outsider, particularly a foreigner, but, but appoint someone who wasn't born into it in a hereditary priesthood. Part of the Magi's role was also appointing kings. You know, when, someone, when a king died, or there was arguments contesting succession and who should be next in charge, this was their job. And it's speculated that this could be you know, the root of our term magistrate, you know, the office of advising and appointing the rule of kings. So somewhere between 562 and 556 BC, Nebuchadnezzar dies. So that's the king who's friends with Daniel in Babylon. And there's a short spat of fighting in successive kings. And eventually another king, Nebuchadnezzar, becomes king of Babylon. In 539 BC, Cyrus the Great is the emperor of Persia, and he captures Babylon. So we've had Israel, little player over here, gets taken over by Babylon, and then an even bigger, bigger fish comes along and takes over Babylon. Now the whole thing is the Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great appoints a new king, Darius the Mede. We call it the Persian Empire for simplicity, but it was an alliance of the Medes and the Persians, so that's why we've got a Mede king and a Persian Empire. It's really confusing. You go down this rabbit hole of history. So we've got Darius the, Reed is in, Darius the Mede is the new king, and again, he notices Daniel's good qualities, and he elevates him to the highest position as well. The others resented this and thought of ways to bring ruin to Daniel, and then we read about that plot where they trick the king to making a rule to bow down to the statue and Daniel doesn't do it and gets thrown to the lions. Again, it's criminal how much I'm, I'm shortening these stories. Um, so again, he's climbed the ranks, first in the Babylonian Empire and now again for the Persians. And then we read those plot against him. He's appointed to this top position of the Magi once again. So Daniel, an Israelite, taken into captivity, climbed the ranks and appointed the head of the Magi priesthood, who were the royal advisors, hereditary priesthood of the Babylonian and Persian empires. So with, with that understanding about the Magi, we go back to our story in Matthew. And it says that these people are coming from the east, you know, these Magi from the east. They're the advisors to the king, the appointers of kings. They're the same group that Daniel was involved with, you know, five or six hundred years earlier. They came to Herod and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And it says King Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, question, how did three foreigners from the east disturb a king in a whole city? It's, it's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? And the answer is, it's a little bit of speculation, but I think it's reasonable speculation. Yeah, it, it doesn't say that there were three of them, just that there were three gifts. The Magi were both the highest-ranking religious and political people of the Persian Empire. Um, at this time, it was called the Parthian Empire. It had a whole bunch of different names. So Persians, Parthians, Medes, Chaldeans, all these different names. They've, they've probably traveled about 1,500 k's if, if we're assuming they're based in the capital of Babylon. It could have been even further east. So you'd bet money that these you know, top people of the empire weren't traveling three people on camels. They would have had armed escorts and lots of supplies. They've probably been on the road for up to a year, possibly two. And we read later that when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. 
in accordance with the time he learned from the Magi. So this, this implies that he was talking with the Magi, and he asked them, when, when did they see the star? And, he, and he's worked, his conclusion is, kill anyone under two. So arguably they've seen this, year, this star possibly two years ago. Maybe it was only a year ago, and Herod wants to add some wiggle room to make sure he really gets these kids. Yeah, but the point here is that they've travelled a really long way. Probably with an armed convoy, wagons of supplies to get through multiple seasons. They've been travelling all across the countryside. So why was Herod and all of Jerusalem disturbed? Probably because there's this armed convoy of Persians arriving in the city. Yeah, it's a bit of speculation, but I think it fits. You know, usually in our Christmas story, we see images like the one at the top left there, which I used earlier, you know, three camels following a star. Perhaps in reality, it was actually a long convoy traveling hundreds of kilometers across the countryside, getting lots of attention in any town that they passed through. You know, soldiers for protection, wagons of food and warm clothing. Yeah. So that's one reason why Jerusalem might have been disturbed at, this, the, at these guys showing up. And again, that's a bit of speculation. It doesn't say that, but I think it's reasonable. But even if that's not what happened, I think there's another, another reason why this would be terrifying for them. And there's a really long and ugly history in this part of the world. Um, I'm simplifying it by calling them the Persian Empire, but as I said, they've had a whole bunch of different names. And at this time, when Jesus is born, they're known as the Parthian Empire. If you look at this map, it's quite a good picture of how complicated things are in the land of Israel. The, the red line's pointing to where Israel is on the map. Israel sits on the edge of this buffer zone between these two massive empires. The land of Israel changed rulers many times between the two of them. You know, at the time Jesus is born, we, you know, when we read the Bible, we know it's under Roman rule. That's all we know as, as Christians in the, in the period of the Bible in the New Testament. It's under Roman rule. But it was actually only about 40 years before Jesus was born that the Romans captured Jerusalem from the Parthians. So it hasn't actually been in Roman control for all that long. And it was actually Herod's father who helped to capture it from the Parthians. So he's, he's heard the stories about the war with these guys. And when... Herod's father became, was appointed king of the region. He actually didn't move into the region for another three years. He was appointed king while still out in Rome, but it was too dangerous for him to actually move in. It's this, this war zone and still bandits and everything. So it's got this history of the people of the Persian Empire, or the Parthians. And there's plenty of Roman historians that talk about the Magi as well. Um, a historian called Herodotus. He was a Roman historian from around the same time as Daniel. So Daniel's writing all this history in Persia, and this guy's writing about the same time, but the history in Rome. And they know about the Magi. They know that they're interpreters of dreams, and they know that they're kingmakers. When a king died, they determined the next king. So they knew that what these Eastern Magi were. They knew all about what they did. So even in the Roman Empire, the role of a Magi wasn't a secret. So again, even assuming there's no army with them, here's a bunch of religious and political leaders from the neighboring empire turning up at your doorstep. Herod knows who they are. He knows his father fought them, and he knows that they appoint kings. And here they are traveling a long way, asking for the one who was born the king of the Jews. You know, if, if anyone said that to Herod, that's, that's an insult. You know, you're implying... He's not born, he's not the real king of the Jews. Essentially, he got the job because his father helped capture the area and was friends with the Caesar at the time. So he's got the connections to be made king, but he wasn't born king. So anyone says that, that's an insult. But if these magi say that, where's the one born king of the Jews? 
it's not just an insult, it's a bit of a threat, right? That's, that's their job, is to appoint the next kings. This carries some weight. Their job is not just to appoint kings, but to appoint kings for their empire, the opposing empire, who is right next door to you, and actually not too long ago had this area of land as well. So it's a bit of a delicate situation, to say the least. No wonder he was terrified. And, you know, the Jews had history in the East with the Persians. It's a complicated history, but it actually wasn't all bad. We read of Daniel being befriended by kings. Um, they had multiple positions of power and influence in the Persian Empire. There were actually more. We read of Nehemiah, who was befriended by the king as well. There, Ezra, there's these examples of Jews in Babylonian and Persian captivity that were befriended by these empires in the East. There isn't anything remotely positive with the Jewish relationship with the Roman Empire. We don't read anything about that. If Israel were to have a real independent king at this point in time, I guess they, they would have probably allied with the East, not with Rome. Or at least they would have preferred them. You know, for the regular inhabitants of Jerusalem, they're probably, you know, there's probably some people there excited that these Parthians are rolling into town and thinking, you know, great, they're going to give it to these Romans. We, we much prefer these guys. Well, they're probably more than likely, most people will have just been worried about, and here comes another period of war and instability. You know, they've seen a lot of war in that area, always conquered by bigger empires wanting to extend their reach. You know, for normal people, they're just wondering, maybe, it's, maybe we're paying our tax to the Parthians instead of Rome next month. You know? We've got a new boss in town, just another oppressor in their endless cycle. So hopefully all of that paints a bit of a picture as to why this was an, a, a, described as a disturbing encounter for Herod and all the people in Jerusalem. There's a lot more that's you know, unspoken information in this story when you look at it in its historical context and the relationship between these two empires. This is an encounter with just three random wise men on some camels. This encounter has them on the edge of their seat and it has the potential to shatter their whole way of life. And this leads to the question, you know, how did these magi know the Messiah was born? It, it says they saw a star, and somehow they knew that meant a king had been born in Israel. And they followed the star, but it didn't actually lead them to, to Jesus. That's usually what, what comes to mind in our little kids' plays and Christmas stories. But it didn't lead them to Jesus. It led them to Jerusalem and to talk to the guy in charge, Herod. Then they consult the scriptures to see where the Messiah was to be born, which points them to Bethlehem. Herod sends them off, says, go have a look in Bethlehem. If you find him, let me know. I want to worship him too. We know that that was <laughs> not quite true. So they head towards Bethlehem, and for whatever reason, the star appears before them again and leads them to the house. How did they know that seeing a star meant a king? And how did they know anything about the Messiah in general? So here's another speculation for you. There, some people believe that there's perhaps a subset of these magi that have had knowledge passed down to them through a prophecy about the Jewish Messiah, probably given to them by Daniel. That, that's the speculation. Maybe Daniel sold, told them something along the lines of, you know, when you see a star in the west, that's a sign that the Messiah in Israel is born. And that sounds like a pretty big claim. On the surface, it just sounds like, you know, I'm making things up, grasping at straws. But I, I do think that's a plausible conclusion. Here's why. Um, in Daniel... You know, uh, Daniel gained reputation for interpreting dreams and visions for the Persian and the Babylonian empires. But there's actually not that many things recorded in the book of Daniel. 
dreams and visions that he's interpreted, those that, that have been are mostly to do with Israel, the nation of Israel and not really that relevant to the kings or the Babylonian and Persian empires. There's a couple, but it says he's gained that, he's gained the reputation before he's even done anything recorded to the, for these kings. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that he's had many other prophetic messages and visions that we don't have recorded in the book of Daniel. You know, in fact, there must be, right? If, if he's got a reputation before anything we, we're reading, there must be more there. So I, I do suspect there are some messages that Daniel received that aren't recorded for us. The speculation is that maybe he received some other knowledge about a star and the Messiah and made sure that this was passed down through a hereditary priesthood in the Magi. So I can't prove that, hold it very lightly. But we're going to look at a couple of the things that are written in Daniel and we'll see that it gets even more interesting and kind of, I don't know, I think reinforces the case that that's quite plausible. So in chapter 9 of Daniel, we read, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from, understood from the scriptures to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. So what's happening here? Daniel's saying that he was reading the book of Jeremiah the prophet, and he notices that it says the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So that's Jeremiah chapter 25, if you want to read that one for homework. You know, Jeremiah says that they're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And he says that them, Babylon who will be enslaved by a greater nation. That's what Jeremiah says. And Daniel's reading this and realizing, well, hold on, he's doing the maths. 70 years is almost up. He thinks, well, actually, if, if what Jeremiah said is really a prophecy from God, we've, we've got some tricky times coming up. So he turns to God in prayer. And it's no surprise that this does come true. Cyrus the Great gave a decree that... The, the, uh, sorry, the, the prophecy in Jeremiah also said not only that Babylon would be snatched up by a bigger empire, but that the Jews would be allowed to return home. So it's no surprise that that does come true, and Cyrus the Great gave a decree that the Jews could return home and rebuild their temple. And amazingly, that decree is dated, and using secular dating, you can actually you can see the date that Cyrus the Great granted freedom to return home. And again, it feels wrong to skip past this so quickly because this alone is incredible, but I actually want to focus on another one of Daniel's prophecies that relates even more with Jesus. You know, so, so Daniel understands that this time is coming close. He prays, and as he's praying, he's interrupted by an angel with another message, which I reckon is probably the most impressive prophecy in the Bible. Did you know that Daniel tells people when the Messiah is going to come? Did anyone know that? Gives them a time frame. It's crazy. Is, is anyone here familiar with the Daniel 70 weeks prophecy? Awesome. Yes, a couple. I'm glad to see some strange blank faces and no one ever heard of that. This is exciting. <laughs> Apologize in advance for the nerdiness, but I think this is really encouraging when you unpack it. So this is the message the angel says to Daniel. He says, know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with the streets in a trench, but in times of trouble. After about sixty-two sevens, after, after the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
And then he, he goes on, there's a lot more written about the last seven or the last, the last part of that, which is way more de detailed and has entire books written about that and lots, lots of different interpretations for that last part. But we're going to focus on the first half of this because I reckon this is mind-blowing. Yeah. So look to start with the angel says, understand this, and it, implying that it, it can be understood, right? He's not talking abstractly. He's expecting it to be understood by Daniel. But how crazy are those words in Daniel, right? Like, forget about the trying to work out the time period. The, the anointed one is going to come and he's going to die and have nothing. And then the people of the ruler will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Like, forget about timelines. Even just saying that in general is like, that's pretty intense. So we're going to try and, try and follow the logic here. So he's saying from the time the word goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, so that's starting point A, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. So that's our end point, point B. He says there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So we've got 69 sevens all up. That's the, the period between point A and point B, whatever that means. So Daniel's given a specific time frame when the Messiah is going to come. So it makes a lot of sense that Daniel would have passed this message on to the rest of the Magi and made sure that they understood it. You know, if the angel's expecting Daniel to understand it, he would have been pretty sure to make sure someone else did. Understand, make sure that they would understand it, understand the importance of keeping track of this in their calendar and passing it on to the next generation of Magi. You know, Daniel's done the maths and he knew that this was talking about a time multiple generations in the future. So he needed to make a plan to ensure someone was paying attention and keeping track of this. Yeah, so I mentioned a bit of speculation that maybe this, that Daniel had some extra message that includes something about following a star and then that will lead you there. It seems plausible, but regardless, we'll ignore that for now. Even despite that, it, it seems pretty logical to conclude that the Magi were keeping an eye out for the Messiah of Israel and had an understanding of the, the time frame when that would happen. Yeah, the, it says that they saw a star and followed it. I, that's way over my head. That's, <laughs> it says that the Magi interpreted stars and dreams and visions all separate to being separate to God's kingdom. So I kind of have this big question mark there. <laughs> um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there was a prophecy given by God about a star. I'm not sure. So anyway, we're going to try and figure this one out. 69 sevens, some, sometimes translated 69 weeks. Um, so the word for week is literally seven. And so initially to us, this doesn't really add up, right? 69 weeks, what's that? A, a bit over a year. Jesus definitely didn't come a year after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Jesus, you know, it was nearly 500 years later, so that can't be right. You know, if, if I said, see you in a week, what do you think? See me seven days, right? That, that's, that's our language, that's how we think. And that's a, that's a good assumption. Um, but in ancient Israel, it, it, a week literally meant seven. So they had the, sab the Sabbath day, the seventh day, that's a week of days. They also had what was called a feast of weeks, or literally the feast of sevens, and this was seven weeks after the feast of first roots. It's, it's literally a week of weeks. They also had a Sabbath year, which is a week of years. Every seventh year they were told to let the land rest and to not farm it. So in that language, a week of years is not an unusual concept. So we're going to try and map this out with weeks of years instead. Are we? <laughs> yes, we are. But before that, we need our starting point. 
and amazingly, we're actually given it. You know when you're reading like the Old Testament and it's full of dates and kings and all this boring stuff? Turns out that's actually quite useful. We read in the book of Nehemiah. So this is a guy, Nehemiah, and he was a Jewish believer who's still living in Persia, working for King Artaxerxes. He was the wine bearer. So again, he's, he's really trusted and a friend with the king. The king basically is trusting him not to poison him. So he's, he's close to the king. And by this time, some of the Jews had returned back and were trying to rebuild the temple, but not having much luck because it kept on getting attacked. It had no walls, no defenses. So it says here that in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And you know, to paraphrase the rest of the story, the king lets Nehemiah go back to Jerusalem, gives him letters from the king, allowing him to use royal resources to rebuild the gates and the walls. And there was a date recorded there. It says, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And another good thing about kings is that, well, it's not really a good thing, but in hindsight, it's a good thing. They're not very humble. You know? Dates that they came to power are pretty reliably recorded in many places. You know, if they're good at telling the world, the last guy's dead, I'm in charge now. You know, put, my, put my face on the coins, build me statues, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so we can work out that, that Artaxerxes, where are we? Artaxerxes came to power in 465 BC. And in Nehemiah, it said that it was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes where he made that decree to send him back to rebuild the city. So that gives us 445 BC. And then they do the month of Nisan is equivalent to March. So we're going for the 14th of March, 445 BC. So from this date, the Messiah will come in Seven plus sixty-two sevens, or you know, sixty-nine sevens, sixty-nine weeks. So if we apply that sixty-nine weeks to years, sixty-nine weeks to weeks of years, sorry, or literally sixty-nine sevens, that gives you four hundred and eighty-three years. So if our starting point is four hundred and forty-five BC, then four hundred and eighty-three years later is thirty-seven BC. You got a minus a year for there's no zero BC. I'm not a mathematician, so this is this is hard work. But, so you look at that and you think, you know, well, that's, that's pretty close, not bad for an old book. Historians who try and date the death of Jesus put him between 30 AD and 34 AD. There's, there's arguments and, and different opinions on there, but one of those four years. So 37 is not really in the ballpark of the popular views. There's a book called The Coming Prince by a guy called Sir Robert Anderson. It was written in the late 1800s. So I don't know when calculators were invented, but he's, he's doing these numbers before calculators, so good on him. He takes this to the next level, you know, and he, he believes and he makes good argument that this prophecy predicts down to the day when Jesus is celebrated as the Messiah. So I'm going to put a little asterisk around this. There are a couple of things that we can't pinpoint for certain. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that it's, it's assumptions. turns out that dates are not as simple as we think they are. Um, did you know that Christmas used to be celebrated on the 6th of January? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> it wasn't until the late 1500s that Pope Gregory changed the calendar, and apparently we lost 11 days. They're just gone. 
So there's a lot of Eastern churches that obviously didn't really like the, the Roman Catholic Church, and they, they still celebrate Christmas on the 6th of January. And some calendars actually mark the 6th of January as Old Christmas. <laughs> That's very interesting. And Jewish calendars were based on 360-day years, but that's being a bit, in theory they were, but they actually had some manual adjustments. At one point they determined every third year would have a leap month, and then there was also, even though it was 360-day years, if the seasons got out of sync with the dates, they would just manually say, well, not nah, today's actually this day. So it's... <laughs> So a year is not a helpful measure of time going back in history. It's great for us now. We know what a year is. But back then, a year was not necessarily the same length as the year before. So this guy writes, writes a whole book of it. And it, you know, it's written in the late 1800s, so it's pretty hard reading in Old English. And he, you know, he consults the British Astronomical, whatever it's called, society, to map the moon positions and all this stuff. So he argues that we can know the date that Jesus died and the events of his last week from the scriptures and historical information. So he's going to try and pinpoint that, that last date with a bit more detail. So we know that Christ's ministry began in the fall of 28 AD, he says. And we read that Luke, Luke chapter 3 gives us a date, the date of his baptism by John the Baptist. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, and goes on to list a whole bunch of other famous people and where they were, so we, we can pinpoint the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. He was appointed in 14 AD. Where are we? Sorry. I'm really not a mathematician, so numbers are not my strong point. <laughs> so we've got the date where he started his ministry. Then he goes on to count that throughout the Gospels, there's four Passovers recorded that Jesus attended. Some people argue three. I don't know, I think probably four, but we're going to go with his numbers anyway. So that gives his fourth Passover, when he dies, a date of April the 10th in 32 AD, is what he tells us. Oh, look, I had them on the screen for you. So his target end date is Passover, 14th of April, 32 AD. And if you do the maths between those two years, you, those two dates, it works out 476 years, not 483 like Daniel said it was. So you think, oh, that's, that's not great. Uh, but as he pointed out, years are not a very helpful measurement for mathematical accuracy. So today we measure in 365 and a quarter years, and it's, it's a good measurement, but back then it wasn't. So he argues to use a prophetic year in Daniel as a 360-day period, as was their calendar. So then he says, well, what's the 483 years and days, 483 times the 360 days gives you a very big number, 173,880. And then we're going to try and do the, apply the same. So that was the 483 years. What's our 476-year difference using our days, which is 365 and a quarter? So he's doing the 476 years at 365 days. Gets you pretty close. Add some leap years and add the difference. So the date between... March was the first date, and April was the other one. And that gives us 173,884 days. You think, that's, that's four days off. That's pretty good for an old book. And then he says, well, I mean, that, that, that's interesting. Passover 32 AD is four days too many. So he reviews the Gospels to see what he can learn about that last week. And it turns out, if, you know, if he's got his timing right, four days earlier is when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
that was the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. You know, this was the first time Jesus allowed himself to be publicly worshipped as king by the crowds. You know, there's many times in his ministry that people try to worship him as king, and it says he slips away. Says, you know, my time has not come. And you're like, come on, man, people have figured out who you are. So you should be you know, announcing this. And he says, no, the day has not yet come. But on this day, that Palm Sunday, we re- remember he actually arranges it. You know, he says, you're going to find a donkey tied up there. Go grab that for me. He makes sure that this happens. He rides into the town, and the crowds are singing, singing from the Psalms. And the Pharisees are saying, you know, rebuke your disciples. They, they knew that the crowd was calling him the Messiah. And they're saying, Jesus, surely you don't want that. And Jesus says, if they didn't sing out, the rocks would cry out. You know, this, this date, this event was so divinely appointed nearly 500 years earlier that even if the people didn't play their part and make known that he was the Messiah, he says that the rocks would be crying out. And as Jesus enters the city, he wept over it. And he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So all this, this destruction, this heartache, he says, why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. you know, this is like basically the biggest tragedy in the whole biblical story right here. You know, for, for thousands of years, the whole biblical story, has been, all the content is pointing towards Israel and their coming Messiah. One day you'll meet this one who's been promised and who will make everything right. And that time finally comes and they've missed it. You know, Jesus says that they were expected to recognize the time of the Messiah coming to them. That's crazy, right? I find this kind of thing really encouraging. You know, in a world, there's so many opinions, so many things we can't know for certain, but here we read some ancient text making this really bold prediction for the future and getting it right. You know, even a super critical reading of those prophecies and a super critical interpretation of history and dates gets you scarily close, too close for coincidence. So much so that later, rabbis would discourage people from reading the book of Daniel. There's even um, writings from prominent rabbis declaring a curse on anyone trying to calculate or understand this prophecy in Daniel. By the 10th century, the Masoretic revision of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, is heavily redacted and removes some of these prophecies. You know, not only did it point out that the Messiah should have come sometime around that time that Jesus did, but it mentions that the Messiah would be put to death and had nothing. You know, that's, that's an awkward level of detail, isn't it? It's so clearly pointing to Jesus, so we're going to have to hide this text and tell people that there's a curse if they read it. Like, that's, that's pretty incredible. And thankfully, again, secular history preserves this truth for us. You know, if you were a Jewish person alive at the time of Jesus, you, you probably would have spoken Greek. You'd know a little bit of Hebrew for your religious prayers and ceremonies, but it wasn't a comfortable language. You normally would speak in Greek. Kind of in the same way where you know, Catholics would know a little bit of Latin for their ceremonial prayers and things, but they, they, wouldn't, they would have also in, spoken Greek. Even when the official language of the Roman Empire became Latin, most people still spoke Greek for a very long time. It was the common language. And so for that reason, Jewish believers around 285 BC were keen to have their Hebrew texts translated into Greek so that they could you know, better read them and teach them. 
and a guy called Ptolemy Philadelphus II, he com commissioned 70 top scholars in Alexandria to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And this is known as the Septuagint. You might have heard it. It's the, the Greek Old Testament. And this is important to note. It, it takes 15 years to complete. So from 285 to 270 BC, the, all these, the top scholars of the world at that time were working on it. It's really, really useful because that means it predates the New Testament by three centuries. You know, it predates Jesus. It locks these words of Daniel into a timeline. The prophecies of Daniel were, at this point in time, considered on par with all the other prophets and, and the words of Moses, you know, 300 years before Jesus, that's what the Jewish people thought. It was important to preserve this book of Daniel, including these, these passages with the prophecies in them. And it's not until a thousand years after Jesus that we see the revisions removing those passages. You know, there's, there's no avoiding that these key events in history took place and that they lock things into the timeline. You know, the, the lazy argument before we, we could document this was Daniel was written late, it was written after Jesus, because you'd have to write it after Jesus, it's too accurate, right? That, that's the argument. And this, this proves that's really not the case. Along with the discoveries of the Dead Sea, sea Scrolls found Hebrew copies and Greek copies of the book of Daniel, again, hidden in, it's in the same, it's on par with all the other prophets and books of the Bible. So it was important to them before Jesus. So we've come quite a bit of a long way from our Christmas story of Matthew, reading about the visiting of the Magi. But hopefully this history brings a bit more light onto this, you know, this tiny aspect of the Christmas story and who these Magi were, the connection to Magi and the role of Daniel the prophet, you know, nearly 500 years earlier, working in the same role as them and, you know, thousands of kilometres away in another empire. And again, hoping help to make that Christmas story a little bit more real and hopefully encourages you in how reliable the Bible is. You know, if you look at some of these prophecies in the book of Daniel and your, you know, your conclusion is kind of like, hmm, that's, that's interesting, bit of a coincidence. You know, if that's your conclusion, I reckon that's crazy, right? Like, you know, some people say it takes too much faith to trust the Bible, and yes, there are some tricky bits, but examples like these, I think it takes way more faith to shrug that off as a coincidence, right? That's, that's just crazy. It's undeniable that these words were written down before the events happened. Dates of secular rulers are recorded in the Bible. You know, such tiny, insignif seemingly insignificant details that in hindsight show the fingerprint of God. You know, I mentioned at the start that the main focus of the Christmas story is not the Magi. It's, it's a really exciting rabbit hole and hopefully it's encouraging, but clearly the, they travelled a very long way to go visit the one who was the Messiah. You know, Jesus is the key point of the Christmas story. It's just not the focus for today's sermon. So yeah, I mentioned at the start, I was hoping to focus on the characteristic of God, you know, being God as a, a planner, or God who knows what he's doing, God who really is in control, has a plan and makes sure it happens. So hopefully during times of uncertainty, you know, when things aren't so clear, you'll be able to look back and remind yourself of some of the things that are clear. You know, this is God showing us he is reliable and that he actually does know what he's doing. So we need to trust him in that in the times where it's not so certain.